Welcome to Outdoor by 4 Magazine's audio edition of Issue 42. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief, Free as a Bird, a paragliding adventure story, The Solitude of Adventure, Tale While Traveling Through the Yukon, 1,000 Miles of Adventure, A History of the Renowned Camel Trophy, and Sean Jansen's introspective look at his addiction to alcohol and how connecting with the outdoors has helped him renew his sense of self. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing and receiving a copy as part of your subscription order by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoyed this issue of Outdoor by 4 Magazine. Dispatch by Frank Ledwell, editor and publisher. Amongst the numerous challenges happening across industries has been the continued problem of supply meeting demand. We've all heard through mass media the supply chain constraints that have affected nearly every area of society, whether it's new cars or groceries. Everybody seems to want goods now, often paying a premium for the instant gratification that comes from availability versus a more prudent approach that requires patience and more patience. But what goes into the products we seek, particularly those in the vehicle-based and outdoor space? And why does having patience require a more substantive analysis than what's on the surface? Supply chain constraints have been impactful for virtually every company in our market space, including Outdoor by Four, given we are primarily a print title that relies on paper to create our product. A common denominator each of the U.S. companies who create and build product domestically is the time commitment that goes into the research and development of their goods to ensure that despite supply chain constraints, once those products are available, they are purpose-built and designed to meet the exacting demands of consumers anywhere, whether it's around town or along the most challenging terrain in the remote wild. Building quality product takes tremendous resource. And one of the observations I've seen, not only throughout this pandemic, but going back decades, is the tremendous economic impact when unscrupulous and seemingly unpatriotic Americans create, quote, newbie Amazon merchant accounts after purchasing American innovations with the only goal of stealing designs and sending them to Asia. Their sole goal is to inject inferior overseas knockoffs that muddy the waters for consumers who are unaware of the underlying quality differences. This shameless practice dilutes the value true ingenuity has in the market and has had the unfortunate result for customers, vendors, and of course the vitally important American jobs created by the true innovators. Some of the very companies who have been supportive of Outdoor by 4 all these years, who have chosen to develop their brand recognition in the pages of our magazine, have been victim to this practice. And the result is cheaper, low quality, poorly made products flooding the market and harming fellow Americans who have devoted themselves to offering quality products and investing their capital, not only within our industry, but within the communities in the form of well-paid jobs. What can you do in your role as a consumer to protect the integrity of American-based companies building products stateside? For one, 
Be aware of the reputation of the products you buy and check to make sure the companies who sell product haven't infringed upon the research and development of others. This may require some effort, but often a product that's priced at a significant discount versus a similar product that's much more expensive may indicate the very issue noted above. Be aware of what you buy and support the companies who support this industry. These are brands who have a vested interest in serving the community, and that's what this is. We are a community of adventurists whose passion for vehicle-based and outdoors recreation provides us an outlet away from the daily grind, and these companies need your support to continue to thrive, even if it requires a little patience. Are you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, four-wheel campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. Free as a Bird, Setting a Goal While Enjoying Adventure from Above, by Max Siegel. As an adventure junkie who's tried about every sport that exists, paragliding is one of the most liberating activities I've ever discovered. From the beginning of time, humans have looked to the sky with envy as we've watched birds circling high above us. And now we've finally harnessed the technology to launch up a mountain with nothing but strings and fabric to join our feathered ancestors in the skies. To those who have never experienced free flight before, the only way to truly describe the sensation of soaring through the clouds is that it seems too good to be true. When I first got into the sport, my goal as a paraglider was never to break records or compete with others. Rather, I was lured by the freedom flying has to offer. Freedom in so many ways that had never occurred to me before. Flying opened the door to endless opportunities as an athlete who loves the outdoors. For a long time, I had been a trail runner, mountaineer, hiker, backpacker, and adventure lover. But there are only so many places a trail will lead you, and only so many miles you can run before you have to turn around or loop your way to the finish line, whether that's your car, your camp, your house, or some other location. What paragliding offers, however, is a one-way ticket on foot followed by a beautiful and exhilarating experience of flying to your final destination. No longer did I have to plan out and back runs from car to car. Instead, I could bring a wing on my back and take the trail as deep into the mountains as I wanted, then take out my paraglider and fly my way back to the car. I could now focus all my energy on the activity I loved, which is pushing myself on the uphill and exploring the remote corners of beautiful mountain ranges without worrying about saving enough time for a long run back or the ankle-pounding downhill slog back to the start. Flying has changed the way I adventure, from my perspective of what's possible in a single-day push to my love for experiencing the world from both the ground and the air. My hometown of Boulder, Colorado is a decent spot for flying but I've always thought of it more as a great training hill because of its relatively short approach and easy access for doing laps. From bottom to top, it's roughly 600 vertical feet, which makes for excellent hiking on the Wellestrabus Trail to the launch. On sweltering summer days with strong thermals, you will often see a handful of pilots on launch waiting for the perfect wind cycle. 
but occasionally the weather is stable with low winds and those are the days I love most. I have always pushed myself to see how many laps I could do in a day and for years I've dreamt of pulling off a 10,000 vertical foot day. However, on each of my attempts, I've been thwarted by shifting winds or changing weather after just 10 or so laps, a feat that takes about 5 hours or more on its own. It's soul-crushing after putting that much effort in, only to be turned away, not because of your lack of strength or determination, but because of the fragile and ever-changing weather conditions that can turn paragliding from safe to perilous. So, on the morning of October 25th, 2021, I checked the weather forecast and the prediction was for mild east winds throughout the entire day. Perfect for hike and fly laps. I grabbed my lightweight wing, plenty of snacks and water, and hit the trail ready for a long day ahead. I've learned not to get my hopes up for 10,000 feet because the forecast can change in an instant, but I enjoy pushing myself physically and there's nothing better than racking in miles of uphill elevation without the strain of even a single knee pounding step downhill, at least in my book. Through past trials, I've gotten my system completely dialed in, which is broken down into five parts. Hiking, unpacking and launching, flying, landing, and packing up. In fact, the entire process has become so efficient that what used to take me 30 plus minutes per lap now takes me between 16 to 18 minutes per lap when I'm pushing full speed. In my pack, I have only the wing, which is always attached to my harness. All snacks and water are in exterior pockets, so when the time comes to pull the wing out, there's only one thing I must concentrate on. When I get to launch, I pull the wing out, lay it flat, sort the lines, and kite it up above my head to make sure it's safe and ready to fly. Next, I turn around and run full speed since there is usually noticeably light wind on these calm days, which makes for a faster takeoff speed. After launching, I look for the quickest line back to the landing zone, trying to avoid flying over any bumps in terrain that might trigger thermals and send me up when my goal is to get back to the ground as quickly as possible. The second I land, I take my backpack off, ball the wing up, and shove it inside the pack. I make sure the backpack I bring for these speed projects is much larger than the wing I fly. That way it's easy and effortless to shove everything inside quickly. My helmet and harness are on the entire time to save time between laps. And once my wing is packed away, I start hiking up again. Getting back to October 25th, I finally reached my goal of 10,000 vertical feet of hike plus fly after completing 18 laps on the North Boulder Hill, a new site record, which was previously 12 laps. The feet took 6 hours and 55 minutes, and the total elevation gain was 10,708 feet. I'm extremely thankful the weather cooperated throughout the entire day because I find that to be the biggest obstacle between failure and success on these long flying days. It was one of the best paragliding feats of my career, and I hope that by leaving the door open for 20 plus laps, someone out there is crazy enough to join me on this journey of pushing the limits for what's possible in a day of hike and fly where you'll feel free as a bird. Tips to get started with paragliding. The most practical way to get started with paragliding is to find a local instructor and start off with lessons. The ranking system goes from P1, which is a beginner pilot, to P4, an advanced pilot. If you're only wanting to get your feet wet to see if paragliding is the right sport for you, it's easy to start out with P1, which includes ground handling skills and four solo flights, all with a very low commitment of time and money. If you're keen on the sport and want to continue with flying on your own outside of the school, you'll need to get your P2 certification. This includes a more intensive course on in understanding weather, physics, 
and dynamics of flying, and more hands-on skills while in the air in addition to the 30 flights minimum for a P2 qualification. Online, the best resources I've used are www.paragliders.com, which is known as Cloud9 and based in Salt Lake City. They offer a great school to learn to fly and a large selection of gear for purchase. I learned to fly through them when I first got my P2. Another great resource to learn from others and buy used gear is the online forum located at www.paraglidingforum.com. Enjoy! The Solitude of Adventure by Hakon Wiley Solitude. It can be hard to find these days. Even in the Canadian Rockies bordering along the Pacific Northwest, my backyard, it's become exceedingly busy. With a large uptick in people becoming interested in exploring the outdoors, particularly throughout this pandemic, I would go out into those secluded mountains and question, was I actually alone out here? The reality was, probably not. Most adventurists typically look for the same thing, a break from a busy society and to enjoy some quality alone time in the great outdoors. And for the most part, I would consider my forays into the Canadian Rockies a success. But I would likely see someone else out there, even if in the distance or sharing a brief wave as we pass by each other. Everyone involved relying on the courtesy of others to keep a distance from each other so as to achieve the seclusion being sought. I was seeking a new adventure, a new experience that would allow for me not seeing a single human being for days on end. It led me to planning an adventure to one such place, the Yukon. I began my preparation and booked as much time off from work as I could get for late August and early September, prime fall color season that far north. Also, the Yukon's motto is, larger than life, an understatement given the territory's sheer scale and remoteness, requiring a considerable commitment of time as it usually takes days just to drive there from any of Canada's cities, keeping the weekend warriors at bay and perfect for my quest to find true isolation. My first stop in the Yukon was the town of Watson Lake along the Alaska Highway. This is also the last place to get fuel and supplies before venturing out of cell service. As such, I was faced with a choice. Continue west along the Alaska Highway and travel the busy but safe tourist route, or turn north, up the lesser known roads deep into the true wilds of the Yukon, hundreds of miles from any kind of civilization. Going north was the obvious choice. My 2020 Jeep Gladiator was fully equipped with 15 extra gallons of fuel to ensure I wouldn't be caught in a tricky situation in the remote wilderness. Food and water to last for over a week, and the full gamut of recovery, maintenance, and camping gear I would need to venture out into the wild. Even so, turning north, I did feel butterflies on my stomach as the Yukon is truly rugged with no shortage of stories about things going awry out there. Some of them ending tragically even for experienced outdoors people. So, I made sure to bring a Zolio satellite communicator to use as a resource for my father to track my location every evening, and that brought some comfort as I pushed out solo into the mountains. Soon the pavement gave way to narrow dirt roads, and those dirt roads turned into trails used only by the occasional local caribou hunter. Much of what the Yukon has to offer is known to locals, but not marked on any map. So I relied on using satellite imagery saved to my Gaia GPS map and going off directions from local elders and family members who had previously lived in the region. This gave me the reluctant feeling I knew where I was going. Sort of. I ventured down the nameless trails, gaining elevation as the temperatures dropped and the leaves turned to vibrant shades of gold and orange. The pine trees turned to shrubs and ended up camping right where the mountains gave way to the tundra. 
A surreal environment of bright orange shrubbery covered the rolling hills and plateaus, dwarfing any big sky views the plains could even muster. This set the tone for the rest of the trip. The Yukon was proving to be incredibly beautiful as well as incredibly isolated. I would spend the next several weeks weaving between the mountains and a high-altitude tundra along old, unmaintained exploration roads, sometimes passing vehicle graveyards from construction efforts in the 1940s. It was not uncommon to go four days or more without seeing a single person, not passing by, not in the distance, no one at all. I was truly in solitude. While I do like to consider myself somewhat of a lone wolf, at least always comfortable by myself, being out on the tundra without a breath of wind, standing in the absolute silence of it all, was a bit unsettling at first, like diving into the ocean far off the coast and looking down into the depths of the sea. The sheer magnitude of the tundra had a way of reminding me that I was really on my own. Additionally, the Yukon had a way of exposing every flaw in my methodical packing setup. While the Gladiator ran without a single issue, I learned the rest of my setup, which I thought was quite good for exploring the Rockies and Canadian Pacific Northwest, was not as adequate as it should have been this far north. Frost-covered mornings were a constant on the trip, and it often rained sideways for days at a time, usually turning the frost overnight into ice. However, I adapted as I had to, and I learned how to keep things dry in the back of the truck. I always made sure I had dry firewood with me instead of relying on what was on the ground, which often would be wet. I found better ways to knock the frost and rain off my rooftop tent before packing up, and amazingly I was able to keep the interior dry and cozy the entire time. I was getting better at keeping myself and everything I had with me dry during the inclement weather, and I took solace in knowing I had found the solitude I had been seeking. I continued to navigate further north, and it was well above the 60th parallel and approaching the Arctic Circle along the famed Dempster Highway, highlighted by 450 miles of dirt road through the Tombstone Mountains and straight into the Arctic. It was the northernmost road in Canada and the only road this far north in the Yukon. I did start to see a few people every day again, which after weeks of solitude was strangely comforting, even if they were total strangers. There was a good reason for the increased activity as the Tombstone Mountains, often called the Patagonia of the North, features a sheer scale that simply can't be fathomed until you're there in person to witness them. I slowed down and spent several days camping along the creeks in the area with a different view of the mountains each day. I eventually made my way past the tombstones, leaving the few remaining tourists behind and now cruising the tundra above the Arctic Circle, exactly where I knew I needed to be. The Arctic Circle is unreal, highlighted by a moonscape full of life and color. The warm oranges and reds of the ankle-high shrubs and arctic flowers, mixed with the cool purples and pinks as the sun set, were quite spectacular. I could hardly believe I was still in my own country. I picked a high point overlooking the tundra with an approximate 40-mile view and stayed there for a few days just to take it all in. The only other vehicle I saw this far north was an old, basic Toyota Corolla, with about as much mud on it as my Jeep. A local for sure, flying up the Dempster at Mach 1, most likely racing to get home before the dark after making a 600 mile supply run, a task considered normal in these parts. I guess I didn't need my Gladiator for such a trip after all. Eventually it was time to head home and back to my daily life. It would take five days full of driving to get back home. I set out looking for solitude, 
a means to escape the crowds that were also looking for an escape. I found it in the Yukon, and the adventure was a formidable experience I'll never forget. One Thousand Miles of Adventure, A History of the Renowned Camel Trophy, by Jonathan Hansen. Despite the fact it stuttered somewhat ungracefully to a halt more than two decades ago, the Camel Trophy remains the expedition challenge by which all others are measured. It spawned dozens of similar events, fostered a global community of exceptional participants chosen from among millions of applicants, inspired legions of fans to embark on their own adventures, and codified a ready-for-anything look for Overland vehicles that has been copied by owners of everything from actual Land Rovers to Subaru Foresters. The Camel Trophy, we presume, also sold a lot of cigarettes, because the entire thing was cooked up as a way for R.J. Reynolds to do so. The company had answered the cowboy-themed Marlboro Man ads with their own Camel Man, a mustached, frizzy-haired blonde chap, real name Bob Beck, who is usually shown poling an old land cruiser across a jungle river or crossing a rickety bridge in a series Land Rover, cigarette clamped firmly between his teeth. In 1978, the West German division of R.J. Reynolds, West Germany being a huge market for camel cigarettes, decided to augment the print ads with an event featuring participants chosen from the public via application. The Camel Trophy was born. Not that it immediately was born to glory. To organize the first event, held in 1980, RJR hired a 22-year-old adventurer named Andreas Bender, who would run the next four as well. Bender decided to stage the event in Brazil along part of the Trans-Amazonian Highway, an optimistic track designed to link the depths of the Amazon rainforest with the coast, but which had fallen into what could charitably be called disrepair when funds ran out to pave it. Bender purchased three U-50s, Jeep CJ5s made under license by Ford Brasilia, powered by the same 2.3-liter four-cylinder petrol engine found in the infamous Pinto, and six German participants left the coast for the interior. Within a few kilometers, everything and everybody inside the soft-top vehicles was coated in red dust, and the concrete hard ruts left by large trucks were shaking cargo, vehicle parts, and fillings loose. Progress slowed, forcing dangerous night drives. Bribes, cigarettes of course, got the group priority on ferries across numerous rivers to the annoyance of truck drivers stuck in queues. A longed-for break at a hotel in Maribah was cruelly not to be, as rooms reserved for the teams had been rented instead to gold miners flashing wads of cash. Meanwhile, one of the Ford-slash-Jeeps caught fire and burned to the ground, forcing its pair of participants into the remaining two vehicles. Despite the challenges, 12 days later, the exhausted group pulled up at the Hotel Tropical in Santorum, only to be turned away again, as the doorman refused to believe these filthy apparitions were the Germans he'd been told to expect. Pleading with the manager finally worked, and the first camel trophy, remarkably, came to a successful conclusion. Perhaps even more remarkably, R.J. Reynolds optimistically agreed to a second event. The consensus, however, was that more appropriate vehicles would be required, and it was just then that Leyland Germany's ambitious sales manager, David Robus, suggested using Land Rover's flagship Range Rover. A handsome discount was arranged for R.J. Reynolds, a stock factory paint called Sand Glow was chosen as the official Camel Trophy color, the vehicles were modified in Leyland's Dusseldorf workshop with roof racks, driving lamps, worn winches, 
and another legend was born. While Land Rover later came on board as an actual sponsor of the Camel Trophy and supplied support vehicles free of charge, RJR always purchased those used by the teams so they could retain complete creative control of the events and use the vehicles afterward for publicity purposes. For the 1981 trophy, Andreas Bender reconnoitered a route on the island of Sumatra, solo, on a trail bike, and five Sanglow Range Rovers, still with all West German teams, including two women, completed a torturous 1,000-mile route that also began standardizing the later events incorporation of special tasks to determine an overall winner. Interestingly, a half-dozen local Toyota Land Cruisers were hired as support vehicles for this journey. Reportedly, to appease the Land Rover reps, the only photos showing them that were immediately released were taken when they were bogged. In 1982, the Camel Trophy came of age, and for the first time included, in addition to the West Germans, teams from the US, Italy, and the Netherlands. The route through the wilds of Papua New Guinea produced probably the most famous Camel Trophy image of all time, a group of Asaro mudmen in their outlandish, enormous mud helmets, clamoring over and posing on one of the Range Rovers. It seemed the Camel Trophy teams had reached the farthest possible point from civilization. What wasn't mentioned in the subsequent press releases was that before the photo shoot, the team had received from the locals a carefully itemized bill, in perfect English, for their participation as extras. Due to some internal political disagreements, the U.S. did not enter a team in the next Camel Trophy held in Zaire, using seven Series 3 88 team Land Rovers and no fewer than 17 109 support vehicles. In fact, there would be no U.S. team again until 1986, just before the introduction of the Range Rover to the States. A highlight of the Zaire event occurred when the Italian journalists, using a petrol stove they were not supposed to have, tipped it over in the back of their vehicle, resulting in a conflagration that skeletonized the 109, all caught on film by the movie crew. The extremely well-prepared Dutch team of Franz Hage and Bank Bont, who not only maintained their vehicle scrupulously and navigated perfectly, but had gone so far as to bring their own exhaust jack, which was allegedly sabotaged by one of the other teams in the interest of fairness, won the event. Even without the participation of the U.S., the next two events boasted 12 teams, Brazil, and 16, Borneo, with commensurate numbers of support vehicles, journalists, and film crews. The Brazil event began ominously when several of the vehicles, the brand new Coil Sprung 110, developed serious issues, possibly due to sabotage at the factory where labor unrest had reached a zenith. Once sorted, the Land Rovers faced challenging conditions due to an extended rainy season that necessitated an alternate route. Even that proved trouble when a bridge washed away completely after two vehicles had crossed. Faced with a truncated event, German competitor Volker Lopp, who had bridge building experience, took over and using winch lines stretched across the river, pulleys and logs chainsawed from fallen trees, the team rebuilt the bridge in two days, crossed and left a much improved structure for the residents to enjoy. Similar community service projects, arranged in advance, were to become components of future events, for which all the teams pitched in. By 1985 in Borneo, the Camel Trophy attracted 250,000 applicants worldwide for its 32 available places. Some of those 32 who were successful might have wound up being sorry they did, for Borneo became known as the toughest Camel Trophy of all. Conditions were so bad, flooded and muddy, 
that the final team to tackle the first special task finished it at 4 a.m. The next task, which started two hours later, was a six-mile drive through mud with a 45-minute time limit. Eleven hours later, exactly four vehicles had completed the course. By midnight, another four had been added to that total, and another two were stuck in the middle of the route, on their roofs. By the end of the event, 1,000 miles of adventure, the Camel Trophy tagline, had turned into just 164 miles of exhausting slogging. Incredibly, a few journalists complained about this, apparently forgetting that the event was designed to be challenging, and that some challenges are more challenging than others. Perhaps appropriately, Borneo was the first Camel Trophy that included a Team Spirit Award, which was voted on by the competitors themselves and came to be as coveted as the Camel Trophy itself. Next year's event, in Australia, proved remarkably uneventful. Camel Trophy 87, however, was a different matter. The application pool had surpassed half a million worldwide for the coveted spots on 13 teams set to traverse the island nation of Madagascar. Range Rovers were once again the vehicle of choice, now powered by a VM Matori four-cylinder turbo diesel. Trouble started when the first special task, a timed 200-meter run on a muddy track, proved much easier for the last several vehicles, which benefited from the compacted surface left by the first few. This caused grumbling among a couple of the highly competitive European teams. The next task involved another, much longer mapped route, this time with the goal of matching as closely as possible the odometer reading of a scout vehicle. The US team of Tom Collins and Don Floyd did so almost exactly. However, the figure had not been written down and sealed in advance, and the Dutch and French teams wondered openly if R.J. Reynolds might have reason to promote an American win to help publicize the introduction of the Range Rover to the U.S. market. A later event that timed the extraction of each vehicle from a lake bogging, which Collins and Floyd accomplished in less than half the time of their nearest competitor, should have proved that they were simply a well-matched and skillful team. But the dissension continued, not helped by several more very badly organized special tasks. There were also vehicle troubles. Poorly designed roof racks had begun to come apart. The teams cannibalized their tail lamp guards for bits to weld on as gussets. Much more worrisome, the two pinion differentials of the Range Rovers and their coarse 10 spline half shafts were failing. On one steep hill climb special task, five of the 14 teams damaged or broke their rear diffs. The French team alone would eventually break two, plus an axle. Repairs put the convoy even further behind schedule. After the seventh special task of an expected 14, there was a near mutiny among the teams, and the remaining tasks were canceled. Despite all this, the group had succeeded in completing the traverse of the island, 2,300 kilometers of it. The Italian and U.S. teams, who had remained friends and above the fray, took first and second place respectively. The most important result of the Madagascar event was that the organizers realized the Camel Trophy needed to augment the professionalism of the on-the-ground management team, which it did in the form of ex-competitor Ian Chapman with Duncan Barber as event coordinator from 1989. Tom Collins became the U.S. team manager, and Don Floyd was brought on as staff as well. Camel Trophy Sulawesi introduced what would be the standard and much more sensible schedule, comprising two days of special tasks, followed by a convoy to cover the planned route, with two more days of special tasks at the end. This had the happy effect of boosting the cooperative spirit between teams, as everyone worked to make sure the primary objective of the year was completed. 
The success of this approach was proven during the 1989 event in a spectacularly muddy Amazon. One three-kilometer stretch of jungle road took the convoy 17 hours to conquer. Another 700-meter section took 24. Yet spirits remained high. Brit Bob Ives, who with his brother Joe won the trophy that year, said, We just ran on adrenaline. We were so happy to be there, and we just wanted to be a part of it all. We felt we would have plenty of time to sleep when we got home. Another competitor quipped that all we needed the Land Rovers for was to carry the winches. It was calculated that there was a total of around 5,000 individual winching operations throughout the entire event. A new decade also meant a new vehicle and a new hemisphere. The Land Rover Discovery was selected as the official vehicle and would remain so for eight years and for the first time the 1990 event was held in the Northern Hemisphere, in Siberia, a locale made possible by the Soviet Union's cautious embrace of perestroika, reform, and glasnost, openness. That the concept was not yet fully embraced was evident in an opening banquet conversation between manager Duncan Lee and their female Russian interpreter. According to Duncan, I told her some of the English guys were convinced she was KGB. She looked back at me cool as you like and said, that's okay, the Russians all think you're CIA. We had a good laugh about it. Perhaps the oddest image ever to come out of a camel trophy was a group of Land Rovers forming a hammer and sickle in Red Square. The 1990s also saw a new level of sophistication, some might say fiendishness, in the special tasks, largely thanks to the imagination of Duncan Barber, who, as you might know, has more recently helped design the challenge tasks at the Overland Expo. To help with some of them, a new winch, the Super Winch Husky, was now standard, as the worn 8274 was not compatible with the front end of the Discovery. Another new aspect of the Camel Trophy, and one could be seen as writing on the wall by a perceptive person, was a line of branded clothing, watches, boots, and accessories. The increasing global resistance to, and laws against, cigarette advertising in any form were beginning to catch up with RJR, just as the Camel Trophy itself was still gaining popularity. So, RJR created a new company, Worldwide Brands International, in part to generate profits from the trophy that weren't cigarette-oriented. Camel Trophy 1991, in Tanzania and Burundi, could be summed up in three words, black cotton soil, innocuous when dry, vicious, viscous, and virtually bottomless when saturated. As if that weren't enough, it's mixed with strands of decaying vegetation, which wind happily around drive shafts and axles. According to Duncan Barber, it's hellish stuff. It stays with you forever, a bit like malaria. A camp on the Rufiji River on the third day out offered a chance to wash off at least some of the embedded slime albeit with a wary eye out for crocs and hippos. Then it was right back into the morass, leaving the convoy at times spread across many kilometers. A burned clutch and broken transmission caused further delays, but eventually the group finished in Bujumbara, Burundi. The next five events, Guiana, Saba, Argentina, Paraguay, Chile, Mundamaya, and Cali Matan, were undoubtedly the apogee of the Camel Trophy, benefiting from solid management well-organized special tasks, good-spirited teamwork, challenging locations, and significant civic projects. In 1993, the teams constructed a scientific research station in the rainforest of Saba. In 1994, they built a research center in the Andes. In 1995, they helped complete a square-kilometer archaeological survey in Guatemala. Mongolia 1997 was different. Ian Chapman was gone, 
and the new director had a mandate to make the Camel Trophy more appealing to the MTV generation. The Sandglow Discoveries now sported plastic kayaks and mountain bikes on roof racks and horror of horrors alloy wheels. The special tasks were gone, replaced with a schedule of driving, orienteering, biking, and paddling challenges, some of them with competitors in green and yellow Lycra outfits. There was even a new, jazzy slogan, One Life, Live It. Despite the new lack of emphasis on driving skills, or perhaps because of it, three teams still managed to roll their vehicles. The penultimate Camel Trophy in South America employed the new Freelander, which didn't even have a low-range transfer case. Clearly the emphasis had shifted, and again biking and kayaking were high on the list of challenges. Nevertheless, or again perhaps because of it, the convoy covered 4,800 kilometers, the longest of any event. And if that was different, the last Camel Trophy, held in Tonga and Samoa, dispensed with four-wheel drive challenges altogether. The team vehicles were outboard-powered RIBs, rigid-hulled inflatable boats, and the competitors participated in scuba diving, wakeboarding, and kayaking, with one epic 320-mile crossing in the RIBs between Tonga and Samoa. And that was it. The Camel Trophy event passed into history, but its legacy and its lesson certainly did not. An astonishing number of Camel Trophy alumni went on to be professional four-wheel drive trainers, passing on the massive experience accumulated during its 20 years of challenging the most difficult terrain on Earth, to everyone from rank novices to several of the planet's elite military units. Even more important, speaking from my own perspective and having been fortunate enough to work with a dozen or more ex-Trophy team members, they pass on the philosophy of teamwork, without which all the driving and recovery skills in the world would have been a little value in those places. That, more than anything, defines the spirit of the Camel Trophy. During the Age of Discovery, navigators would guide their wooden ships by the stars. The Age of Discovery continues today with explorers guiding their vessels by the satellite. Garmin has been the leader in GPS navigation since 1989, and the tradition of excellence continues with the new Tread XL, a GPS navigation unit built specifically for the Overland Explorer. Featuring a rugged IP67 weather resistance rating and a 10-inch ultra-bright touchscreen display, the Tread XL provides turn-by-turn -turn navigation of unpaved roads using OSM and U.S. Forest Service mapping. Get custom routing based on your vehicle specifications, detailed aerial views with downloadable bird's-eye imagery technology, and sync data across devices and routes with the Tread app for your compatible smartphone. With an active subscription, the Tread XL also links with in-reach technology for reliable global satellite communications. The Garmin Tread XL is built for the journey ahead. Roam the unknown with the leader in GPS navigation. Roam the unknown with Garmin. In Search of Fifth Gear by Sean Jansen. The shift into fifth gear is an easy one in Montana. 
A state of only a million people and the fourth largest by landmass, there is space and public land as far as the eye can see. The biggest city inhabits just over 100,000 people, therefore creating long stretches of wilderness of trail and road to explore to your heart's content with little worry of encountering another human, unless you want to. For reference, the state of Montana is so big that if you were to drive from one corner of the state to the next, it would be like driving from Washington DC to Chicago. For an added wrinkle, many of the roads between those points aren't paved. However, for the first time ever driving in the state, my five-speed manual began shifting into gears I metaphorically didn't know I had. For the last 10 years, my gears were first or reverse. I didn't know there were four other gears. I only knew of one gear, alcohol. And reverse was one constant relapse trying to get sober after the next. I went nine days for the first initial time getting sober in late March. Waking up one morning sick and tired of how I continuously felt after a night of drinking and just fed up with how my life had been going. Proud of those days spent not drinking, I relapsed by choice, thinking I could prove to myself that I could be a responsible drinker. But that wasn't the case. The next time I went sober was April 13th. A special day as it is the anniversary to the start of my journey on the Pacific Crest Trail in 2015, until recently, my longest stint in sobriety. Each relapse in the following year meant binge drinking to make up for the time spent sober. Ranges varying from a week or a few days to 17 days and even a month. I wanted to get sober, but couldn't find it for a lasting amount of time. I would have a bad day, fight with a loved one, have an argument at work, or just simply not wake up with any drive for the day unless it was to the liquor store. Spawn the excuses to throw in the towel on that particular sobriety stint and go back to the bottle. Days woke up hungover quickly became all day drinking fest as I finally discovered the meaning to the phrase, hair of the dog, and took it to heart pouring myself one Irish coffee at 8am after the next, thinking it was the cure to my hangover, which in theory it was, but not for the following day. I did, however, notice patterns that could help me achieve becoming sober. I began to develop a mindful practice in meditation. Staying deep in thought, letting those negative feelings bounce around like a pinball machine until finding its mark and let the processing begin. I began drinking teas and even apple cider vinegar, green smoothies in the morning and keeping count of my water intake throughout the day. Staying busy and waking up early drove me to be grateful for the days without a hangover. However, in the afternoons the demons crept in. Where the excitement of the morning faded to a dark depression of staring at the wall later in the day. Living with my parents at 30 and beginning to really beat myself up over my situation and actions, a dark future lay ahead and drinking always seemed to be the very temporary band-aid for how I felt. I needed a new bandage and rediscovering the great outdoors became my beacon in the storm. Coming home from work around 5, my spring, summer, and fall seasons were treated with afternoon coffee and trail running the last hour or two before sunset. Always outdoors and always on the trails, I listened to the birds' chirp and the wind blowing through the trees. Each time outside offered snow-capped alpine views, flowers swaying with color, and my feet crunching with each step in the dirt. The endorphins post-run was an irreplaceable feeling, one no drink or form of substance could replace. Lacing up the shoes was often the hardest part, 
To this day, I still battle putting on my shoes, but with each lace tied into place, it was like putting on the boxing gloves and getting into the ring with my demons. With each relapse, a battle had been lost, but, in my heart, I knew a war could be won. Repetition is of order. If I could repeatedly pour poison down my throat for ten years and more, there is no reason I couldn't lace up my shoes and fight on. I began journaling. Writing about when I run, the endorphins granted through exercise from being outside would lift me above the clouds, above the highs and lows that alcohol and substances give, above the rainstorms and lightning bolts that shock my world while my alcoholic self sits huddled into a ball in the rain beneath. The great outdoors alleviated the heavy bricks and darkness of depression and raises me up shooting me to my desired passions and dreams. All I must do is lace up my shoes and battle those demons. I knew I needed to prioritize this and thus my dream of doing a van life was realized. Being able to wake up and fall asleep at trailheads sounded like the answer. However, upon searching for my dream rig, the pandemic struck. But the dream stayed alive and my Subaru became my sober chariot. With summer's eve creeping in, the car was packed. Road map by my side and my wanderlust and exploration powering me down the road. Running shoes were stowed in arm's length and a trailhead told me of my destination. That destination being the 41st state in the country, Montana. Based out of Bozeman, I set out for my parents' house shortly after the summer broke. Trail running may have saved my life. Shortly after I began running, the clarity of other gears began to be recognized and the haze of 10 years not being myself was unveiled. Trail running helped me pop that metaphorical clutch that got me into second. But fly fishing, camping, and photography all helped me seek third, sparking the idea to hit the road in my 2010 Subaru Forester and explore every trail, road, and stream in the state I could, healing with each mile of dirt and water into thousands of acres of national forest, parks, and lands, casting into its streams and backpacking to remoteness gorging myself on mother nature therapy and recovering with every minute spent outdoors. Building up the car seemed overwhelming at first, but the great thing about the 21st century is our technology and the internet helped with ideas. I folded the back seats down in the past and just laid out my sleeping bag and called it a night. Realizing my six foot frame could easily fit into the back with comfort, I began drawing up a simple platform to put a pad on and stow gear underneath. The sleeping platform was easy and cheap to build. In fact, it was free. The discard dumpster out back of the local department store had all the necessary framing needed to build the space for me to fit into. That along with enough wood to build out a drawer for a stove so I can cook and boil water for the two most important liquids in my life, coffee and tea. With priorities now set in place for sleeping and cooking, the Yakima rocket box on the roof was stuffed with all appropriate gear backpack, fly fishing gear, and an air compressor and toe straps. The space underneath my platform has enough room for a small cubby to put clothes and a space adjacent to fit an axe and firewood. Behind the passenger seat is a seven gallon water jug with a couple other liter and two liter water bottles for easy accessibility. And the rear passenger door cubby holds my gravity fed water filter for stream water. Underneath the driver's seat rests my tool bag for anything that wants to rattle loose on the road. 
Behind the driver's seat is where the dirty clothes hamper along with extra storage for some fly fishing gear and a space for my laptop. The front seat has my old Nikon D200 and the 250-500mm lens for passerby wildlife along with my toiletries bag and my Go Pack with my other camera, a GoPro, bear spray, etc. My Subaru has five gears, and for the last three years living at home drinking, I have sat in neutral, despite shifting into first and reverse. Since hitting the road, I have discovered the shift into second and even third gear. I do know there are two more gears to explore, and sadly know that first and reverse are always going to be there in the rearview mirror. But I do know that second gear is a healthy workout through trail running and the start of breaking through the storm, and third is me riding the clouds with each cast of the fly into untouched, trout-riddled waters with views of what lay ahead. The way I see it is that my front windshield is a lot bigger than my rearview mirror, and that if I keep looking forward, the less I'll need to look back. I guess I just have to keep dreaming and working hard to discover what fourth and even fifth gear may bring. Am I perfect? Far from it. But each day I get stronger and with every new run into nature, every new trail discovered in bear country, and each trout gently released from hand and back into the water. I have investigated rehab, attended Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and sought therapy. But all have led me back to the bottle. Somehow, running and fully living out of my Subaru, deep in the woods of Montana, has led me to where I am today confident enough to write this piece and hopefully inspire others to find their path in nature and recover from whatever may be holding you. All we have to do is lace up those shoes, put the car into gear, and get out there. Who knows what is around that next curve of dirt road to discover. Here's what's coming up in issue 43 of Outdoor by 4 magazine. Michael Holland tours ghost towns in a Lexus GX460 from rental company Titus Adventure Company in Colorado. Scott Brown explores Copper Canyon on an adventure motorcycle. Frank Ledwell reviews the all-new Nissan Frontier Pro 4X at Miris Adventure Park in the Texas Panhandle. And Lauren Sherwood takes us on a hiking adventure. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at, at Outdoor by 4 and using the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures.